Hey, welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode number 43. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A terrific addition to the podcast this week as we'll talk with the television legend, Loretta Swit, 11 seasons on MASH. And uh, we'll talk with one of the busiest guys in Hollywood these days, Mark Duplass, who uh, has got to deal with Netflix, of course, and HBO as well. His series, Room 104, just completed its second season. Uh, Season three has already been taped and edited and is ready to go. And they're in the writer's room working on season four. Along with that, he's got a brand new movie that opened last weekend on Netflix with Ray Romano called Paddleton. And we'll talk with Mark about the making of that movie later on in the podcast. But first, well, she's a television icon, and that was certified this past weekend uh, at the Oscar party, where she was named a television icon, along with Michael Learned from the Waltons and uh, veteran character actor Bernie Capel. Loretta Swit, who played Margaret Hotlips Houlihan for 11 seasons on MASH, was an Emmy Award winner. She's also got a brand new book out called The Watercolor Artistry and Animal Activism of Loretta Swit. Switheart is the name of the book. Her website, switheart.org. We had a wonderful time talking about the book, the Icon Award, and of course, some great MASH memories with Loretta Swit. A lot of very exciting things going on for you as you'll be a Uh recipient of the Icon Award along with Bernie Capel and another friend of our show, the wonderful Michael Learned. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it couldn't it couldn't be better. What a what a swell bunch. I mean, but uh, and also Jamie Farr uh, has uh, agreed to present me my award. That couldn't be better. I mean, he's such a sweetheart. And in fact, uh, I did not invite him to do that. I don't like to impose on my mesh family. You know, they they're always there for me. They're always doing things and so. On. And I I thought this is you know. Not a small thing. You're asking him to come from far, put on a monkey suit, as we used to call them, <laughs> and and you know have dinner and do thing and the stuff. That's fun, but uh, it's you know. And and so I said, don't anybody bother my family. Well, of course they did. <laughs> they they called them all, you know. <laughs> and so um, I, I said that to Jamie. I said just. Uh, melted my heart that you said yes and, you know, you want to do this. And he's, oh, swear, are you kidding? I love you. So um, that's fun. Bernie Capel and I did a wonderful love boat together that we still talk about. It was just so much fun and so nice. And Michael Learned, I absolutely adore. I think she's one of the best actresses ever. So this is going to be a happy time. It's going to be a wonderful, happy time. Also, a brand new book out that showcases your wonderful watercolor artwork and all for a wonderful cause, too, the Switheart Animal Alliance. Uh-huh. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. I love painting. So how how wonderful is that? I'm doing something to raise money for my charity and help animals. And at the same time, I'm loving painting. And so it's uh, I'm in a win-win situation here. I actually had one of our state legislators reach out when he saw that you were going to be on our show and said, I remember when she came to Maine about 15 years ago and testified uh, before the legislature when we were discussing uh, animal rights. And they remember that very vividly. 
Oh, how wonderful. Thank you. I was, well, I, I may have been with Betty White. Betty White and I used to go out and raise a ruckus over animals' rights. And uh, uh, did he say what the issue was? He, he didn't. No, no. His, his yeah. memory didn't go back that far. You know, you get to be, yeah, yeah. you get to be like me in your, in your early sixties and the memory goes. Yeah, that's kind of not true, but if you want to believe that, it's up to you. It's kind of not true. Your memory, you know, you just keep exercising your your mind and your memory. It never has to leave you. By the same token, you can meet some young people who can't remember their phone number. Uh, it, 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 it's, not, it's not genetic. It's not, um, but uh, you can develop, uh, there, there are like, there have been studies on how to teach memory and that, that work. And there are people, uh, and I forget what you call this group of people, who remember every day from the time they were born. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? Um, well, I know Mary Lou Henner uh, is one of those people. Right. Yes. Yes. And there's a name. There, They have a name for it. There are a few Obviously, not a lot. But um, yes, Mary Lou can remember everything from the time she was born. This is phenomenal. Your memory and your mind is your your biggest asset. So don't think that you you're you're just repeating things that you've heard that <laughs> people start forgetting things. It's bull. It's not true. You can remember. You can train yourself to remember, and just not get lazy about it. No question about that. Well, we I, I don't I don't I don't want to pressure you into anything, but I'm serious. You know, uh, you what did you say? Sixty? That's very young. We had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about ways to improve your memory as you age. And, and they had a little uh, test that you uh, took, and, and one of the one of the giveaways was, do you make lists all the time? And I thought, well, I do that, but that's not a sign of aging. Uh-huh. I've been doing that for about thirty five years to keep myself organized. Exactly. I was about to say you're organizational. You're that's that's a good sign. You're you're a thinking man. Oh no, that's uh, that's not a sign of I won't forget. I can't forget. Or it's a sign of an organized mind. Well, when you talk about memories, uh, so many of us had wonderful memories brought back recently uh, with Alan Alda's clear and vivid podcast. podcast. Oh, <laughs> well, we had Sarah Chase on our show, one of Alan's producers. Uh, to preview the podcast, and and she had some wonderful stories, but how great it was to hear you all together again, and and it just came through the love and affection that y'all have for each other. Yes, and and what what happens is that um, globally, the families watching us had love and affection for each other and for us as they were consuming uh, the series, we all became family, I'm theorizing. But I honestly feel that people want to know us better. They, they love us. They love our characters. They love what the show represented, and they don't want to let it go. And they want us to be our family. They want us to be close. And uh, Alan and I have had the most remarkable response. You know, we're on Twitter, you know, or whatever. And... Um, uh, there are more than once we have gotten Alan uh, wanted to turn this into a, a weekly series, you know, get get the group together and entertain <laughs> us. But the the um, response to the podcast was just 
overwhelming. People had so much fun. I had I had a fan come up to me and say he plays it over and over just to make himself laugh. He says it is so entertaining and it makes me feel so good to like connect with you guys again. See, that's it. That's it. the connection. The connection. They don't ever want to lose that connection. And they feel they're connecting to something really solid, moral, spiritual, and, and healthy. And I, that's, again, Loretta's theorizing uh, <laughs> of the storm, but I, I honestly feel that that's, that's how the audience feels about MASH and the characters. Well, Mike Farrell is a great friend of our show. He comes on with us every year, and he's told us a number of times about what a, what a unique experience it was for him when he joined the show a few years in, finding out that the producers and the writers actually wanted the input of the actors, and that's not something that always yeah. happens. <laughs> true absolutely true also what was incredible and you talked about it on the podcast too the the transformation that your character made from from hot lips Houlihan to margaret and and fleshing out that character and uh, i've read other interviews that, that that was important to you to make sure that the character was fully formed uh quite honestly uh unless she continued to grow i wouldn't been i wouldn't have been able to uh stay because it wouldn't be real. No, no, no human being. And I'm playing a human being. They, you change every minute, every day, every, you know, you can't, and things happen to you. The war, we're at the front. That happens every day. Every day we're in the OR, 14 hour stretches, maybe. You cannot do that and not be affected by it, not change. And it has to change you somewhat. Here is uh, a woman too young to be a major. They promoted them in wartime very quickly. Uh, she had credentials, and she was a good student. She was a good nurse. So she got promoted, and, and I'm sure she was the youngest major. I don't know if uh, Harker said that in, in his book. But uh, my research says that you know they um, promoted them and moved them forward. The other thing that people... Um, need to know is that those women were volunteers. They weren't drafted. Right. They were volunteering to be in the country that was the hottest you could find in the summer and the coldest in the winter. And the three killers during the Korean conflict, number one was frostbite. Number two was snake bite. Number three was the uh, police action. So that's kind of interesting in itself that the territory, the area, the surroundings, uh, were enemies for these women and men, but the women who I just think they're heroes. You know, they volunteered to serve there, and and uh, it was not an easy, pleasant thing, and they did it anyway. But what what's wonderful about the show is that you never stop forgetting that they were crazy because they were in a crazy situation. So they couldn't be sane. They, in order to survive, they had to be crazy. They had to mm. pull pranks and make jokes and, and do crazy things and fall into each other's arms and looking for companionship, solace, uh, just humanity, humanity searching for something humane in a horribly inhumane situation. We're war is inhumane. You know, war is not human not civilized it's wrong <laughs> and so 
So that was always the undercurrent, and that that's what worked better than um, um, the the early movies years ago, you know, where you, let's take this hill or the charge of the light brigade. <laughs> to, you know, Kwai, uh, Bill Holden's character, for example, very, very wonderfully um, expressed um, his feelings about soldiering and war and military and, you know, um, uh, he had, talking about the general. He says that kind of heroism gets people killed. You know, so he was very much against uh, what uh, he was doing. And um, and then, of course, to find out during the film that he was <laughs> imitating an officer because he thought they'd be treating, treated better. He was so human. He was so human, and in the end, got rather a heroic death trying to blow up the bridge. Right. So, uh, uh, but but that, but that was as close to truth and real as you can get. And I think... I think MASH did that. Uh, people died on our show. And and McLean Stevenson uh, had this beautiful little um, um, advice uh, for uh, Hawkeye. He said there are two things, two rules uh, of war. One, people die. Two, doctors can't change rule number one. And uh, out of that came an episode called Sometimes You Hear the Bullet. And it was an old uh, chum, an old um, school chum of of, uh, Hawkeye's brought in on a stretcher. And so the the writers and and the producers, they really tried to deal with very real, honest situations. A lot of our stuff came from people who had been in Korea or had been treated at mass units or, you know, I mean, the, the, the stories came from truth. Uh, even, even like the funny ones, <clears throat> the soldier wanted a, um, uh, I don't know the, the Latin name for it, but it's a nose job. And <laughs> you can't, you can't perform plastic surgery like that, but they did it anyway. Do you know what I mean? It was so real. It was so, so delicious. And, um, they're just the things that they were trying to always deal with. The boys with their martinis and the still in the slump, they finally came around to saying they're always drunk. They can't be. They have to start saying it's going to affect their work. It's going to affect their whatever. And so we sure out of that came uh, an episode called Alcoholics Unanimous. <laughs> so, right. so and, and you had... Hawkeye and Trapper and me and, you know, the people who were drinking, deal with that, get on top of it and realize it wasn't going to help. One of the things that really stands out to me, and we've talked with Mike about this before, too, is it says a lot about the cast that you were able to bring in new people uh, when, when original cast members left, whether it was Mike Farrell or Harry Morgan or David Ogden Stiers, and they immediately meshed with the rest of you and came out of that experience uh, loving it every bit as much as the folks who've been there from day one. Um, right. The folks that had been there from day one left in day in, in year three. So uh, the first day we all met was magic. I mean, everybody loved everybody. It was real cold. We were out at the ranch. I remember Wayne was blue and he was so cold <laughs> and 
his nose was dripping and freezing. He had like a little icicle on his nose. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was five in the morning. He's standing there shivering in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and so we were all cuddling. And I do believe the body temperatures and the cuddling made it impossible for us not to get close to each other. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, But there was, I think, the magic of of the stories and and what we were doing uh, that really nailed the bonding in a special way when you're working on something that that eventually gets the Humanitas Award. I mean, when you're working on that kind of level where the writers are just so outstanding, you got to have the words. I mean, I'm not saying the actors weren't wonderful. We were, but got to have the words. You don't do that on your own. Nothing actually in anything is achieved by one person or one group. It's, it's a real communal effort. And, um, uh, and we had that. So, so while you're, while you're complimenting us taking in the new people, you have to realize the new people were magnificent. <laughs> it was it was not a chore <laughs> to get to know these. I mean, Mike is like my big brother. <laughs> I, he'll say, love my little sis or something, or I'll say, hey, bro, come over here, give us a <laughs> hug. Or, I don't know. Uh, he's, he really has filled that part for me like a, like a big brother. And um, Harry was everything, not only to me, Harry was everything to everybody. If you... If you uh, you gathered the troop and said, all right, just one actor. Who is, who's your favorite? Everybody would say Harry. Harry was, oh, ah, there was nobody like Harry. That I mean, scene where you said goodbye to him, even now, oh, I can't think about no, it without tearing I, up. What do you, well, how do you think I felt? <laughs> I, we did more than one take because I remember Burt Metcalf was directing. <laughs> and he was looking to heaven and saying, please, people, stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was so magical and, and wonderful and, and bittersweet, very painful. I mean, when I look at that, yes, it's acting because you are using yourself totally, and it's a method kind of actor that that does that. But to look at Harry and have to say, you dear sweet man, I'll never forget you. I mean, that was in my heart everlastingly before I had to shoot it, before I, you know, when I met him, the, he was a guest star. I fell in love with him then. But I'd always loved his work in film and TV and so forth. But here was this prince of a guy. I mean, he was just, he was everything to everybody. He was he was my confessor, my father, uh, my lunch date, my family. He was just, and 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 the best colleague, you know, he 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 was a serious actor and took himself so seriously, uh, but never so seriously that he didn't make light of a situation. He didn't gag. He didn't pun. He didn't. He was he was everything. He was everything, and he would he would just destroy us, make us laugh so hard. Um, and um, there was just there was just. Nobody like Harry Modest, and uh, I said to him, I really would love for you to start writing your book. I mean, think you've done something like, what, 110 films, most of them classics, 
you know, I started to reel off, inherit the wind, oxbow, oxbow incident. Oxbow incident, yeah. And so he, he started to laugh. He said, Butlerette, <laughs> you're not naming any of the turkeys. <laughs> he said, of which there were many. <laughs> he said, I did a film with Bobby Blake called The Most Dangerous Man in the West. Starring Vaughn Monroe. Now that's funny. He said, <laughs> Vaughn Monroe, racing with the moon. And then Harry was off with his funny stories. He he uh, was special. Nobody like Harry. I used to say, you are uh, half gremlin, uh, leprechaun, <laughs> menahuni. You know, he just was special. Everybody, you always go to Harry with a, a problem or a I don't know. He just, he was always, he was always there. I understand there's a wonderful story about the, the final episode and, and a little bit of an inside uh, joke here of sorts uh, with David Ogden Stiers, who had borrowed a book of poetry from Margaret and that uh, when he handed no, it back. Versa, no, but vice versa. Margaret, Margaret borrowed it from him. Oh, that's right. And she thought, she thought it was a gift that he should give her a very Margaret. <laughs> and he said, well, no, <laughs> it's mine, and I want it back. And uh, there, there are, like, earlier scenes that are run along this line. And during uh, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, he came to collect. Now, prior to this time, you have to know that I always had a running gag with Dave, and I teased him all the time about nobody knew where he lived, where to find him. We had to call his agent if we want to invite him to a party, you know. And I said... You're not going to get away with that, with this gang. We're close. We love you. You love us. You know, you can't give me your phone number, at least, you know. And, and I said, all right, David, what if I wanted to invite you to a party? And he said, I probably wouldn't want to come. You know, very Winchester. You know? <laughs> I probably wouldn't have any desire to attend such a party. Anyway, so this, this went on a long time. And uh, when... Winchester, in saying goodbye, gives her the the poetry, the the book of poems. He handed the book to me on camera. It was my close-up. And Margaret opens the book because David, because Winchester has uh, signed it. And David signed it to Loretta. Uh, which I saw on camera, which is why I, I nearly uh, avalanched with tears. Um, and it had his phone number. He, he wrote his phone number. And I just, you know, and then unrehearsed, when I pull away with the Jeep, he looked at me and he put his hand over his heart. And that spoke volumes. Well, it was so wonderful to hear you all together again and sharing those great memories and some very funny stories. Uh, yeah. There there was some practical Wish joking going on there. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Wish we had been able to uh, do this when Bill was still with us, mm. David, and, you know, uh, just you, you would have found out how very funny Harry could be. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. I remember once Harry, Harry did a funny little gesture sometimes that particularly made Mike crazy. He would just roar. He would just fall on the floor and laugh. 
So there was this one episode where the boys were trying to get away with something, and um, they want to quarantine this soldier. And I, Margaret rolls into the office saying, Sarah, they're trying to pull a fast one. I don't know what it is. And so, all right, he says, boys, fess up what's going on. And uh, they're they're in cahoots, and they say, we think the patient has schistomiasis. And I'm like, what? Are you, what's schistomiasis? And, and, and um, Harry calms me down and says, no, 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 there is, uh, I am familiar with schistomiasis. However, um, he said, it's acquired uh, from wading waist deep in the Nile. And so he looks at the boys and he said, but I don't understand how a soldier in Korea, a fair distance from Egypt, could acquire such a disease. <laughs> now, when he did, when he said waiting, waiting into the Nile, every rehearsal, he would do this funny little gesture. It was sort of uphill, like like, like the soldier was waiting <laughs> uphill. Well, Mike could take just so much of it. He finally just fell on the floor, and he just could not. He was in pain. He was holding his stomach and screaming. So Harry used to do that to us a lot. And uh, it, I can't tell you how wonderful that is to to do the kind of work we did, which was very serious. It's very serious subjects, and and yet we were able to laugh and and enjoy each other so deeply, and and you see the similarity is very uh, <laughs> very uh, amazing because. That's what the characters were also doing. They were doing a very serious job in a very serious situation. Uh, I wanted to pass along a personal story here. My sister recently retired as a a state policeman uh, in New York State, and she said, uh, well, if you get a chance, mention this, that uh, in the days after 9-11, there was a gathering of first responders, and she was there at the Javits Center in New York, and you came... Uh, putting yourself in harm's way and talk to them and thank them for all their efforts. And, and she told me that she remembers to this day how impressed and how grateful all of those first responders were to have you come and, and make the time and say hello and thank them for their efforts. Oh, wow. Well, that's so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I um, was at ground zero. I had gas mask and everything. I was there when they were still pulling down buildings. And um, it was important for the guys to know that everybody cared. I mean, they're they're supposed to be there. They're supposed to be doing what they're doing and so forth and so on. Um, case in point, I was uh, at the Javits Center one day feeding people. And uh, <clears throat> this... Um, a fireman uh, came uh, around in front of me. There, there was a line of people going through. I was making burgers or something. And he said, Miss Witt, you were here yesterday. I couldn't believe she said that. Mm. I looked at him and I said, that's right. So were you. And, and it was, he looked at me like, right, we're both here together. And that was uh, I'll never forget that moment. It didn't occur to him that that he was coming every day. <laughs> it just we was surprised that I was there again, and that 
that told me I was doing the right thing, you know, certainly. And another time, um, I was working at one of the wagons uh, with the food. Uh, one of the workers came over to me and they said, uh, could you go um, to, I'll, I'll take you, I'll take you to part of the line. One of the guys was asking if you were here today. So I knew it was meaningful to all of us, actually, but it was meaningful uh, to them because they started to ask if I was there or or was I coming later or tomorrow or something? And oh, but these these guys and these wonderful search rescue dogs, search rescue people, I could literally leave the Javits Center at night, whatever, one o'clock in the morning, and hail a black and white as if it were a taxi. Mm. They would pull over, and I would get in the car, and they'd take me home. And. Uh, same thing for a fireman or any of us. There were no strangers. It was, it was Shangri-La. Everybody was connected. Everybody was family. It's horrible that it takes thousands of people to die to make us realize that we're all connected. Well, it made an impact, and certainly. My, my sister remembers it very well uh, all these years later. Yes. Uh, 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 tell her the memory. It's, it's very vivid in, in my heart also every day that I was there. I was there for about two months. I, I had a job that I had to go out of town for, but it was, it was a very important part of my heart and my life, my memory, Never forget being with all those extraordinary people. I had um, uh, the most charming experience. Uh, I'm not sure I can tell you about it. Uh, I'm not sure it's... um, uh, I mean, it's not crazy, but I I was with a bunch of guys. We we finally, uh, we sat down. This is at Ground Zero. We all said the hell with this, and we took off our masks. And I, you know, they're they're like soldiers. They can do it. They're like, but I thought, the hell with this. They should know who's behind this mask. (laughs) And so we sat in and um, without our masks, probably inhaling who knows what. And um, they chatting and said, I didn't know you lived in New York. You live in New York now? And I said, well, I was here doing a play. And um, they said, which play? And, and I thought, uh, here we go. I was in town doing the vagina monologues. <laughs> now, it, you know, you're, you're already laughing. Uh, prior to how serious they took the play eventually, uh, the press had, you know, when you did interviews and oh, ho, ho, and, you know, and I was noted for saying, just a moment, I'm not going to let you make fun of this. Is a serious piece, it's, uh, and it's you should be taking it seriously. These are women speaking out, blah blah blah. And I would do this thing, and and all my interviews were like that. If they if they chuckled, I said, "Hold it," because if that's where this interview is going, I'm out of here or whatever. So I was very <laughs> adamant about that. I believed in the piece. Now I'm sitting here uh, with these boys, young young men. And uh, he said, uh, what play are you doing? And I said, the vagina monologues. 
and they didn't seem to have heard of the play, but one of them looked at me and said, man, I really could use one of them monologues right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed. I mean, we screamed. We howled. It was so beautiful (laughs) and open. And, you know, it was to me, he was saying, boy, would I like, I'd like to hold and hug and love a woman right now. I didn't find it uh, predation. I didn't find it low or dirty or, you know, he wasn't chuckling at the idea. I mean, it was just fabulous. It was just um, a wonderful, funny moment. I told the story to Alan. He was screaming. He said, that is so funny. But it was wonderful. It was so honest and pure, and uh, I'll never forget it. If Eve Ensler only knew. Yes. That's a wonderful but, uh, story. And, yeah, well, uh, it, you said it was your sister who yes. remembered all of these things? Absolutely. Well, please give her my love. Tell her um, thank you for being there. Thank her from me for being there. You know, we did a great thing for, for us to be there. Uh, Loretta, thank you so much. Appreciate you making time for us. <laughs> Travel safely thank and uh, congratulations again thank on the award. You. Oh, thanks. God bless. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you very much. Bye bye now. Bye for now. Terrific conversation with Loretta Swit here on Downtown. What a treat. She's another one of those, Carrie. You hear the voice on the other end of the phone and immediately you go, Oh my God, that is. That is Margaret Houlihan. That is Loretta Swit. Yeah, and a bit surreal every time the that you make that phone call and get that voice on the other end that is just, yeah, I watched that or I heard that voice coming out of my TV for a decade. That's yeah. odd. And and that was a character, but after talking with her for a long time, you can tell there was a lot of Loretta Swit in Margaret Houlihan as well. Yeah, she had, and I think uh, they've talked about that the actors had so much influence mm. in creating those characters as the show continued on that, yeah, I think a lot of Loretta ended up in Margaret. Yeah. I love the story of her saying that, uh, you know, if they didn't, they didn't free the character from what it was early on in the relationship with Frank Burns. She was out. And uh, that was great. I love the stories about Harry Morgan, David Ogden Styers, and the vagina monologues. <laughs> <laughs> All good stuff there. All right, when we come back, a quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then we chat with Mark Duplass about his new film with Ray Romano, Paddleton. It's next on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our next guest on Downtown is a regular with us. I think he's one of the most talented and interesting people in the business 
of making films and television shows. Mark Duplass, along with his brother Jay, have really carved out an empire of independent films, very interesting television shows. Uh, They've got a deal with HBO to make Room 104, which just wrapped up his second season, its second season, and has done a, a series of really interesting movies over the years. His last one on Netflix was a terrific film with Sarah Paulson called Blue Jay. Well, that same creative team has gotten back together to make Paddleton, which premiered on Netflix last Friday. And it's a story of friendship of two interesting um is it safe to say uh not the most sociable guys in the world yeah i think both reserved sort of alone loners except for with each other yeah and they form this uh, incredible bond that is certainly tested when one of them the character played by mark duplass uh, realizes he has terminal cancer and asks his best friend played by ray romano uh, to be the guy to, to help him end it all Uh, it's a fascinating funny film but one that will also make you probably shed a tear or three along the way mark uh, talked with us about the making of his new film paddleton hey mark how are you how's it going fantastic thank you what exciting times in your world oh man it's always exciting times i get to make my stuff i'm good to go yeah, and you uh, you got the team back together, the same people who uh, did the Blue Jay that I, I thought was so fantastic, back for Paddleton. Yeah, that was really exciting. I mean, Alex Lehman, who uh, directed Blue Jay for me, is just like, he's one of the greats. He's just very attuned to the human condition. I just love him. I, I like this movie so much, and you've talked about uh, leaning into the, the smallness, uh, those seemingly unimportant details that we all have that, that tell so much about us. What, what makes that such a powerful draw for you? You know, it's interesting. I, I, ever since I was little, I think like I was drawn to just more personal stories. And even when my friends were watching star Wars and stuff, I was just, I don't know. I was like weirdly like watching Woody Allen movies and, and, and another, you know, Kramer versus Kramer <laughs> things like that. And, and it's just where my where my interests lie, I guess. And I think I realized, luckily, that a place like Netflix, who you know we do a group of movies with, they really still see value in that. And I think because they make so many kinds of things, and you know, it's almost like the bigness of that company subsidizes the little movies. And I'm just really lucky they have you know targeted us to let us do what we do there. Ray Romano is so great in this movie, and of course, everybody loves Raymond. I loved him in that, but I also loved, it wasn't on for very long, but Men of a Certain Age was such a good series. What did you see in Ray Romano that made you feel he'd be the right guy to play Andy? Yeah, you know, I I would love to take credit for uh, what I'm calling the Romanescence right now. (laughs) Um, But the truth is, you know, everybody saw it before I did, Uh, you know. Jason Kadams, who who ran the show Parenthood, cast him as Lauren Graham's love interest, and we saw him do something so unique there. I think we saw the seeds of this in Men of a Certain Age. Kumail Nanjiani, you know, uh, playing opposite him in The Big Sick, mm. was really showing his range. And so I was just tapping into what people were already seeing, which is Ray's uh, ability to inhabit the everyday, the minutia, the small things, which he had done for primarily comedic effect through the years, worked so well in the dramatic realm. And, um, you know, I was just really exploiting what I was already seeing and, and was still lucky to have him. Hey, you worked from an outline. A lot of what we see on, on the film was improvised. 
obviously Ray being a, a stand-up is pretty comfortable with that kind of thing. He is totally uncomfortable with that. Kind really? Of thing. Ray is <laughs> Ray will trick everyone. He looks so <laughs> casual and relaxed, but he is, and he'll tell you this too. He is the most neurotic, the most nervous person. He was terrified to come do this movie because despite how talented he is, and I think this is partially why he's so talented is he's second guessing his every move. You know, he wants it to be good. He's not sure if he can do it. And he's just so wonderful to work with in that regard. But, um, but yeah, when you have no script to lean on, it gets a little scary sometimes because sometimes we'll do a take and it just falls dead. <laughs> we're like, oh God, what do we do? But that's part of the fun of the process is what you sacrifice and lose and, you know, in preparation. Uh, and you guys see that, you know, you you do a big show at like the Penobscot Theater and you rehearse it and it's great. That's 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 just different than what we do. We we are trying to find something in the moment, and when you find it, it's really exciting. But when you don't, it's you know, it's a little scary. You also had to invent your own game for this. <laughs> the title of the film Paddleton is based on a game that uh, you and Ray's character play. And I le- like the idea so much that it's not a game where you compete against each other, but you play with each other, and then that ties in so much to the message of the film. That that really is the core of what's what what this movie is about. You know, you've got these two sort of outlier guys, you know, um, and they don't really fit in that well in the world. You know, their their apartments are. They're just not that great. They have dead-end jobs. They don't have a lot of friends or social skills, but they found each other, and they are each other's perfect person. And then, and that's a unique story for me, which is it's, it's kind of the uh, when Harry met Sally of platonic male relationships. Um, and what I really love about them is that the way that guys normally relate on screen is usually sort of like, a gruffer, quote-unquote, bromance level. And, and the way I experienced my male relationships is, is, I don't know, it's just different. It was like a lot of hugging and sweetness. And and, and um, we wanted to show a relationship that, you know, is all about working together against the world and that the game of Paddleton is is the perfect metaphor for that. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that's what, that's what stood out to me, that this is not... I don't even like that term bromance. It's not that at all. And, and in this case, these two guys are, uh, you know, they're not particularly glib. They, they don't, they don't uh, no. have a lot of flowery speech, and yet they communicate this love for each other, this care, and it's done, I don't know, the way, the way my friendships are. And I'm, yeah, I'm around Ray's age, uh, but most of my friends that I hang out with are people in their early 40s, and there's that whole dynamic as well. I just thought it was such a great honest portrayal of male friendships and we don't see that much in movies yeah i really i mean i appreciate you saying that because that is that is what we're going for and you know uh, i'm very aware as a creator these days that all of you out there have 400 movies on your netflix queue that you want to see you know and i don't want to add to your onus of things you need to see unless i'm i'm feel i'm offering you something unique you know and that's very hard to do and i'm not going to sit here and preach for my soapbox that I made a perfectly original film. But I do think there are not many movies out there that portray male friendship as I know it in this way. Um, and, you know, and in particular, these two guys, they have nothing technically good going for them in their lives, but they're so happy and fulfilled with each other. And I kind of find them aspirational in that way. You know, my life is wildly more successful than I ever could have imagined, you know, and yet still... I'm, you know, shopping on Amazon, buying things, trying to fill those little holes and voids, and 
and these guys have so much less than me and are so much happier. And I, I, I take them as kind of an inspiration in that way. We're talking with Mark Duplass about his new film, Paddleton. Uh, you two are great together. I absolutely love the scene. Uh, I believe her name, I want to make sure I get it right, uh, Dendry Taylor, the scene in the hot tub. Yeah. Oh, God, that was great. Yeah, Dendry is this wonderful actress. You know, I first saw her, she played one of the sisters in that movie, The Fighter, you know, and she really got that that sort of Massachusetts thing down. It's hard to get right. And then I cast her in my show, Room 104. We did an all-dance episode of Room 104. The, the, That's right, the, she was uh, in that, anthology. yes. Oh. Yeah, she was in that. And so she's become one of our sort of core team players. Um, and she was really great. You know, we can't, she does this wonderful scene where there's a, a little bit of flirtation with Ray's character. And, you know, it's hard to come in and, and <clears throat> drop in the middle of a movie and improvise all the dialogue. And that's sort of why we continue to work with people that, that we like and that we know and we build a community. And, you know, Alex, the director and I had made Blue Jay before this with Sarah Paulson. And, and we have a trust and, uh, you know, and a camaraderie. And I really like making movies with a little tribe of, of people that we kind of, uh, you know, just stick in the trenches through the years. Now, I have to ask, was Ray's halftime speech improvised? So Ray's halftime speech comes from Ray himself. <laughs> he brought this to the table. It's something that he thought would be funny, but that he has also been working on. So Ray Romano himself worked tirelessly on the halftime speech and uh, and prepared it for that. And And, you know a lot of the things in this movie, the idiosyncrasies that you'll see of of how these guys are and how they relate, they come a lot from conversations that Ray and Alex and I all had before we shot the movie. We would do these meetings, and rather than traditional rehearsals, because there was no script, we'd say, what are the kind of things they would talk about? What are the kind of games they play? Oh, they probably, they probably are obsessed with, like, B-Kung Fu movies. And, <laughs> and we literally shot and made a kung fu movie that was specifically for this film and you know we said they probably just eat frozen pizzas all the time and pick a different game every night and so we we built the whole world around it and and ray is a lot like that and so we 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 stole a lot from him well now i'm waiting for the release of death punch yeah you know death punch was uh is the is the is the sort of seminal kung fu movie within Paddleton that they're obsessed with. And Alex, our director, kept telling me, I want to sh- shoot Death Punch. I want to make a movie <laughs> called Death Punch. But Alex, that's ridiculous. Let's just go find an old kung fu movie, and we'll license the footage and use that. You know, And and i got to give it to him. He was dogging. And he's like, I'll, I'll go an hour outside of town. I'll shoot it so cheaply. It's going to be worth it. And so I gave it to him, and he just nailed it. All right, was I reading too much into this? Because I'm always looking for details in the movie. I'm pretty sure I spotted DNR on the license plate. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there are always little things <laughs> that uh, your department heads do that are called Easter eggs that they drop throughout the movie. And our, and our production designers dropped a little something in there. That was a, that's an incredible catch on your part. We thought that would be more of a, a third viewing kind of situation. <laughs> I also love, too, uh, reading a, an interview you, you did uh, somewhere else out there, and, and the fact that people are interpreting that, that hot tub scene in different ways. And I, I don't want to spoil anything in the movie, but I, I just interpreted that. My perspective was that Ray's character is a little bit awkward, but also so caught up in what's going on with his best friend that he can't think of anything else. 
Yeah, I think that's right, you know, but, um, you know, to your point about the way a movie like Paddleton can play differently for different people in different settings, we really enjoy that. You know, we're, we're not trying to make a movie that is our vision very clearly, and we want to exact that vision upon you. What we're trying to do is create, you know, a genuine experience, uh, and then you can walk away with it with what you get. For instance, you know, this is a dramatic comedy. There's no doubt about this. This is a movie... It's about two friends dealing with uh, the impending death of one of them. And that's dramatic. But Ray Romano is also in it, and he's really, really funny. And so when we play this movie at Sundance in front of 1,500 people, there's uproarious laughter in the movie. It almost feels like you're watching a screening of of Dumb and Dumber at times. Um, But then I think when you watch this at home at Netflix, it plays much more dramatically. And it it is very subjective in that way, and I I think that's great. I'm not 100% sure that it plays that much differently because I was watching it late last night uh, and, and had to keep the laughter down. So I didn't wake my wife up because the, well, they're good. That you're yeah. The, 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 the lines work when you're uh, whether you're seeing it in a theater uh, at Sundance or, or watching it in the dark uh, <laughs> at 1130 at night. Uh, it, it was I'm glad uh, that makes me happy. You had some late night giggles at that, that, that. That's that's a big goal for us. <laughs> yeah, and, and and then you know, the punch to the gut sneaks up on you, you because you're laughing and you're enjoying these these two, even though you know where it's going. When you get there, you're like, oh my god, why did you do this to me, Mark? Yeah, I think that you know when we wanted to uh, make a movie like this, we felt like it was important to have the back half of the movie be truthful um, and be gentle and be slow and not be pushed in any way, and almost have it feel like a documentary. And, you know, without saying too much, a lot of those last scenes, we would shoot 15, 20-minute takes unrehearsed. Mm. The cameraman wouldn't even know where we were going, and we would light the whole apartment so that we could just have it unfold much more slowly and naturally in real time um, and and give it the, the honor of, of, I guess, a more truthful experience. And, and it was really... It was very emotional because we shot the movie in in sequential order, you know. So every scene, normally when you shoot a movie, you just jump all over the place for whatever's practical. And we we tried to shoot as much as we could from scene one forward. And by the time we got to the end, it was like Ray and I had spent these sort of beautiful two to three weeks together, and it was just quite emotional, kind of uh, you know, experiencing what we experienced there at the end together. Well, I can imagine. Now my quandary is this: How do I work? fatty pork into casual conversation with people? It's a really, really good question. You know, the the life of these two guys, Michael and Andy, is dominated by small little games. And, and to a small degree, that actually is based on me and Jay, uh, and me and my kids even. I'm in this phase where my daughters are 11 and 6, and we do this thing in the morning where we play game Olympics. We get out like every board game in the house <laughs> and just like plow through all 25 of them. Um, and 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 one of the games that is is played is this sort of this uh, this looming hangman that one of the friends cannot get and, and how that's resolved. So um, yeah, if you can work if you can work fatty pork out, man. I, I hope it becomes a national phenomenon. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I like the board game idea. My little guy, my five year old, uh, when it's just the two of us, I will create games. But that's now become yeah. an obsession with him. But he calls them mind games. I hope no one else hears it when he says, "Dad, uh, come up with some more mind games for us to play." Oh, I love it. Here's a, here's a recommendation. We created a game together as a family. We call it Emoji Guess. Okay, so you take Ooh. little 
um, index cards. You cut them in half, and you take all the sticker emojis that all these kids inevitably have, and you put one emoji sticker on each card, and then you place charades with the emoji and have to act out the emojis. And it's good because little kids don't have to read words or anything. That's so great for the little ones. Oh, I like that a lot. Hey, uh, before we let you go, I wanted to say just another great season of Room 104. And you had told us about this last time we talked, uh, the season two finale, Josie and Me, written by Bangor yeah. native Lauren Budd. And what a terrific episode that was. Oh, man. I mean, you know, this is one of the first episodes of television to air on HBO that was written by a 19-year-old person. And, um, you know, Lauren and her mother, Mary, you know, they're family to us. And Mary helped produce, um, you know, my wife Katie's movie, Black Rock, which we shot all in Down East Maine. And, and they're just such, I mean, it's just an incredibly, creatively talented family. But but Lauren in particular, you know, she wrote that episode. She's She's out here with us now. And writing more for us and and um you know just couldn't be prouder of of what she is turning into and you had so many talented folks on the show this season uh mahersha ali uh, natalie morales rain wilson and, and katie in an episode as well yeah i wrote an episode for for katie Appleton there uh playing someone who believes she is an artificial intelligence being and we're not sure if she <laughs> is absolutely insane or or maybe is and that was that was really fun for me to write her something so she could just do something wildly different. And Now, you've already shot season three, is that right? That's right. We shot seasons two and three together in a big block. And, and then we're in the writer's room actually today, uh, cranking away at season four. Um, so, you know, we're just really lucky that HBO lets us have this little late-night sandbox where we just get to tell crazy stories in a hotel room and just kind of do whatever we want. What's well, great news indeed. Uh, Paddleton opens tomorrow night, uh, Friday on Netflix. You want to check it out with Mark and Ray Romano. Uh, it is really terrific. Mark, thank you so much. Really did love the movie. Got it. It was so great. And as always, good to talk with you. Thank you for the support as always. Mark Duplass talking about his terrific new Netflix film, Paddleton. Uh, check it out for yourself and see the great work that Mark and Ray Romano uh, do in that. Thanks to Mark for being with us as always. Thanks to the great Loretta Swit, and thanks to you. Please spread the word about uh, Downtown the Podcast. If you're not a subscriber, well, for goodness sakes, do that. Get it delivered to your inbox every Wednesday early morning and uh, tell your friends to do the same. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we'll see you next time on Downtown.